Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this afternoon's National Committee program on perspectives from rural China. My name is Margot Landman. I'm Deputy Vice President for Programs at the National Committee. It may seem in the midst of everything that's going on in the US-China relationship to be a little bit odd to be talking about the Chinese countryside. Of course, this program was scheduled before the latest in the downward spiral in the bilateral relationship. But rural China is really important, partly because of the scale. I was reading something earlier today that said 564 million people live in the Chinese countryside. That in itself is something to which we should be paying attention. In addition, a lot is going on in the countryside that we Americans tend not to think about very much. I'm referring in part to the poverty elimination program, but also to migrant labor, left behind children, um, ethnic relations, cross-border relations in some of the country. There's a lot. And we're really fortunate today to have two extremely qualified speakers who bring very different backgrounds and perspectives themselves. Meilan was born and raised in rural China. We got to know her when she participated in a national committee program, the Professional Fellows Program, which brought her to the United States in 2015, which seems like an awfully long time ago. She divided her time between the National Trust for Historic Preservation in Washington, D.C., and Preservation Green Labs in Seattle. She then went back to China and returned a couple of years ago and is now enrolled in a graduate program at Berkeley. Also with us is Matt Chitwood, who is not born and raised in rural China, uh, perhaps born and raised in the rural US. He is joining us from Idaho. Um, Meilan is joining us from Berkeley. Um, but he spent two years in a small village in southern Yunnan as a fellow with the Institute of Current World Affairs and got back to the US in late 2019. So each of them will speak for seven to 10 minutes and then we will open for Q&A. If you would like to ask a question, please use the Q&A icon at the bottom of your screen and we will get to as many questions as we possibly can. 
So with that, I will turn it over to Melan. Sure. Um, thank you, Margo, for the kind introduction. Hi, everyone. It's such a great pleasure uh, for me to be part of this conversation. Um, I have prepared a presentation uh, slides, uh, which Erica would uh, share her screen. Thank you. So as a um, person growing up in a remote uh, part of the Guizhou province, I have witnessed the transformation since I was a child. Um, like many uh, people from humble backgrounds, I believed from an early age that the route to a better life uh, would lay through excelling at school or migrating to some big cities to, you know, to earn a living there. And today I'd like to share uh, some stories from my family uh, to see how their uh, real life got transformed. Um, next, please. Thank you. So where I'm from, um, I grew up in a very picturesque village in Guizhou province. So the first picture on the slide um, is my home village where I was born and spent most of my childhood there. Um, so Guizhou province is uh, located in the southwestern China and it is one of the least developed uh, region in China. It has over 40 ethnic minority groups um, and, and Guizhou is also has one of the um, highest rate of illiteracy in China, especially among uh, many minority people. And it is also one of the major sources of migrant uh, labors. And in recent years, it has become one of the uh, fattest growing economies thanks to investment in infrastructures, uh, information, technology, uh, industry development, and also uh, ecotourism, ethnic uh, cultural tourism development, etc. cetera. Um, so in the last three decades, uh, there are 280, uh, about 280 million Chinese people have left their village for uh, the booming cities in search of a work, uh, making, the, making up the greatest wave of migration from, um, um, from in human history, um, as, well, uh, as well as leading to a great transformation of a rural life. So the story that I'm going to present in this slide um, will highlight the spectrum of such uh, transformation. Next slide, please. So this woman um, in orange coat is my aunt. Um, and during her era, she did not learn how to read, how to write. She literally didn't go to school even for one day. Um, so about 20 years ago, she and her husband decided to sell their uh, land and house in the rural village and leave for the cities in search of work with their three children. Um, but due to her illiteracy, uh, she could only find manual uh, job, labor jobs in, at some construction sites and many other low-end jobs. Um, none of her three children finished high school um, since they couldn't attend schools outside of the region. And they um, ended up picking up the same jobs as their parents when they grew up. And right now she's in her mid 60 um, and has, she has no social safety net to rely upon. Uh, what she worries about the most is a falling ill or having to shoulder unexpected costs. Uh, she told me she's saving money uh, for her adult sons to, um, you know, to help them to look for a wife and pay for the wedding, etc. So uh, this is a story about my aunt. Uh, next slide, please. 
So there, so these two little cute boys are my uh, cousin's kids. Uh, my cousin, her husband, are part of the younger generation of a migrant worker, and they they can write, they can read and write. They had uh, attained um, basic education, um, which means they could have more job options. And uh, compared with my aunt, and also they are more able to make uh, decent income. Um, while they be have become much more uh, financially, you know, uh, better off, uh, the high cost of living in city, unstable employment, uh, so far from home, and the restraints on, on, on China's household registration system um, force them to leave their children with their uh, illiterate grandparents. And their reunion ever, uh, only happens um, once a year uh, during Spring Festival. And after a month's stay uh, with their children, they have to pack up secretly and leave the village in the early morning, you know, when their children are still asleep. Um, despite the hardships and the compromises, their children um, have, a, have a brighter future compared with um, the children of my aunt, uh, since they can still attend school and are actively, actively supported by their parents to do so. So my cousin told me when I was visiting her last year um, that her biggest hope is that her kids could go, could go to the village, earn a master degree, um, and they don't have to leave their children you know, like they do to them. So this is a story about my cousin. Next slide, please. And their personal story uh, would represent two uh, path, different pathways, and it may bring about also, um, different consequences. My aunt, um, due to lack of basic education, she does not have many choices of jobs, um, and therefore she cannot invest too much money, energy on her children's education, and consequently her children are less likely to have a promising uh, future and are under great pressure in supporting their parents uh, due to inadequate social safety net, which means it is more likely for them that the poverty issue will last longer, maybe passing from one generation to the next. Uh, next slide, please. However, um, for my cousin, uh, even though they didn't finish high, you know, they didn't finish high school, uh, she is exposed to more job opportunities and can make higher income um, compared to um, my aunt. And she and her husband are willing to spend every, every single penny they have in their children's education and personal early, and early development, um, which would, could help their children um, gain better, you know, more promising future when they grow up. You know, in return, their children could support them uh, when they retire. Um, and they don't have to rely upon the inadequate social safety net that much. And their children also are more likely to ascend to uh, the middle class. Um, so their story, of course, cannot represent the, you know, the millions of people from rural area. They, only, they could only epitomize part of the picture of this era. And next slide, please. So in recent years, uh, we have seen some new trends, um, both happening in my hometown and also in some other regions of China. Uh, 
Uh, generally speaking, the number of uh, migrant workers from rural areas still uh, growing. However, there are some opportunities of development emerging in recent years, uh, such as e-commerce platform like Taobao, where people can promote their um, local agricultural products and some, and there are some very popular, you know, like uh, live stream apps such as TikTok, uh, Kuaishou, et cetera. The, you know, these, these apps are very, very popular among young people in village. And some people even have made themselves celebrities online by introducing uh, their uh, rural, you know, their daily rural life and the local specialties. Um, and, the, the, the tourism industry, especially in some regions, um, with the unique culture and special landscapes, um, has introduced a lot of uh, job opportunities for the local villagers too. And besides the migration from eastern uh, to uh, the middle and western regions is increasing. Um, this is partially because some labor-intensive industries has shifted to those regions. And at the same time, challenges also remain. Uh, such as the widening uh, income between rural and uh, urban population, and the number of people, the number of populations generally declining. And in addition to the aging issue uh, nationwide, this may reduce um, productivity while increasing um, labor and healthcare costs in the long run. And last but not the least, um, the pension system and education resources for rural people still remain um, uh, insufficient. Um, so this is the last slide of my presentation. And uh, next I give the floor to, to Matt. Thank you, thank you for your time. Thank you, much to ponder. Now Matt, we'll turn to you. Great, thanks so much Margo. And thank you to the team there at the National Committee on U.S.-China relations. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Meilan, uh, for your insights. Wonderful to share alongside you as well. And I would be remiss um, to not say a big thank you to the Institute of Current World Affairs, whose uh, very generous funding allowed me to live for two years in this beautiful place. If you can see, uh, I assume you can see on my screen here, <clears throat> this is Bangdong, uh, a village in Yunnan province in southwest China. Let me expand this here. There we go. Uh, out of the 350 people that live here in Bangdong, um, this man, Liu Daga, is, is by far one of my absolute favorites. Uh, he's a 50-year-old man. He stands about to my shoulder right here, has, has bitter sarcasm that would uh, rival any Brit. And he's the man who helped me uh, turn this abandoned house in Bangdong into uh, a home for two years. And through work with him, through many, many conversations sitting in his kitchen around, uh, around a corn cob fire munching on sunflower seeds, uh, a lot of really meaningful and perspective shifting conversations with him. Uh, and one of those conversations happened one day walking alongside this road that loops through Bangdong village. And just one of those moments for me, I was just so struck by the beauty uh, of this scenery, the mountains that fade off endlessly, the lush tea terraces that stare step down into the valley, the bamboo fronds that shoot out of everywhere. And I turned to him and I said, you know, Liodaga, Leo like you, you were born here, you've lived here your entire life. 
Uh, is this still beautiful to you? Do you still appreciate the beautiful, the beauty of this? Or is it boring normal to you? And he looked at me and he pointed to those mountains. He said, it's because of these mountains that we are poor. And I, I, I thought, oh my gosh, like, he is so right. These mountains are absolutely the reason for their isolation, the reason for them being cut off from economic opportunity, uh, that their only option uh, up until maybe 10 or 15 years ago was subsistence farming. They are the reason that Leo Daga, uh, that Brother Leo has been poor his entire life. But what I think was more powerful to me in that moment was the realization that even something as innocuous as a mountain that we could have such different perspectives about that. Not even to begin to think about other issues such as China's role in the global order or US-China trade relations or the Communist Party, uh, issues like that. And so I learned very early on to approach every conversation, have as many conversations as I could to approach every conversation with an open mind uh, and be quick to listen because I wasn't there to, in Bangdong, to convince anyone of anything, but I was there to listen to my neighbors and learn from uh, the people in Bangdong. One of the things that I learned and one, uh, was from this man, Liu Guojun. He's the man on, on the right in the blue hat. And one day uh, I went with him and his brother-in-law with, with their cattle down to the river below to water and to graze. And as we were walking, he looked around and then uh, he, he was telling me some of his stories. And then all of a sudden he dropped his pants to his knees and I, I was startled. And he had this scar that basically ran the length of his buttocks. And he began to tell me uh, about a degenerative hip condition that he had, that he'd have had to spend his entire life savings to have a surgery on that. Obviously that was the scar. Um, but not only that, that surgery was not successful. So he had to spend a second life savings uh, on a second surgery that he borrowed from family and friends in the community. Uh, and then another story of how his sister had been kidnapped by uh, an employer in the city uh, and held ransom and that they had to take that ransom money and go to the police in that city and pay them that money in order that they would rescue his sister, uh, and not to mention in 2007 when he decided to sell his cattle and get into the tea industry uh, because prices were rising. And then in 2008, the, the bubble popped and prices uh, fell and he, he lost another, a third or a fourth life savings. Um, so life is vulnerable. Life is very vulnerable for people on the countryside and, and people like Meilan's family that she des described. It's vulnerable for migrant laborers uh, like Liu Baohong, who is from a neighboring village that doesn't have a tea industry, uh, relies upon subsistence farming uh, or going out uh, to work and, and facing and unable to get social services like healthcare or education for his daughter um, because those are reserved for urban residents. And so he has to leave his daughter uh, at home with the grandparents and he and his wife work in separate cities. For those fortunate enough to, well, fortunate in their own right, some people prefer to stay around in their rural community. So people who are able to find economic opportunity locally, um, even sense of safety 
is a luxury that some people cannot afford or some people choose not to afford because of their economic decision-making. Basically, that's the only factor in their decision-making. Um, and so there's, uh, I mean, I could tell you story after story of people's scar stories from saw accidents or drunken knife fights or uh, trucks that have lost their brakes and gone off cliffs uh, or roads that have just collapsed. Um, people who have drunk pesticides uh, just because life is so unbearable, unbearably hard in these areas. Uh, life is vulnerable. At the same time, there is good news about what's happening. And I think Melan already gave us uh, a hopeful projection of what life could be for the next generation. And I think uh, major sources of this good news uh, is that, well, the good news, I think, first of all, is that I found with people that I talked to uh, across the province that their lives are better today than they have ever been, ever before. And so that is good news. Um, for the 800 people, the 800 million people who have been lifted out of poverty and incrementally in the last 40 years um, since new economic policies have kicked in, uh, that is good news. Two major drivers of this, um, infrastructure development and, and improve social services uh, along with the poverty elimination campaign. So you can see here uh, new highways going in, the infrastructure development, new high-speed rails going in, punching through these mountains that no longer are these places inaccessible to, to people. Um, that, you know, these mountains that have kept people poor uh, for so long, uh, for the first time, they're having access to uh, economic opportunity outside. Uh, the first week that I moved into Bangdong village, they paved their first road in the village ever. So for a village that relies on agriculture and that has five to six months of rainy season every year uh, that turns those dirt roads into mud and limits their access to markets, paved roads uh, are critical. Uh, the, the poverty elimination campaign also critical uh, we can go more in depth into the logistics of this and Q&A if that's of interest to people. But in short, uh, President Xi Jinping in 2015 said, Let, we are going to eliminate extreme rural poverty by 2020. So what he means by that is uh, everyone having $500 per capita income minimum. Um, that the two non-worries, people not having to worry about clothing, or food and guarantees of safe housing, healthcare, and education. And this is coming about in 2012, there are almost 100 million people officially in poverty. Uh, end of last year, about 5.5 million and on track to accomplish this goal by this year. There are caveats to that. I can talk about that in Q&A. Um, but for now, I will just say that that people are living their best lives now. They have new houses. They're not living in, in what I lived in for two years, which was comfortable and amazing, but they have these types of houses. Uh, Brother Leo, he told my parents when they visited that they could stay in his nice clean house rather than cry themselves to sleep with the rats in my shack. Um, people have uh, access to healthcare. Uh, surgeries are not wiping out their life savings two, three, four times and kids have access to education. And kids are the, the long-term play here. Uh, and I think we heard this in Melan's presentation as well. Education is what is shifting the future 
for, uh, for generations to come and the long play uh, to fight poverty and improve, improve life in rural China. And, and this is important uh, to policy as well, and this is very important that we understand uh, that those rural residents attribute their improved lives to the Communist Party and to President Xi Jinping, who is quite literally the poster boy of the Communist Party and this poverty elimination work that's happening. Um, it was his goal uh, and um, because of his leadership really and the political financial uh, capital to push this forward, uh, these people, um, my neighbors in Bangdong have much better lives. I read recently in a, a academic journal here in the US uh, that said that uh, basically party resilience, uh, why the Communist Party was able to stay in power for so long was because of party control of media and education. And I think um, for us who are working in policy and academia, um, foreigners and Chinese both working to understand China and the policies coming out of Beijing or working to understand US-China relations I think it's important to understand that that narrative is far too simplistic. Um, that support for Communist Party is not this, fin, this thin veneer based on propaganda and brainwashing, but it's based on people's lives being remarkably better than they were 40, 30, 20, 10 years ago. Um, and that's why there is very strong support for the Communist Party in rural China. I was delighted this week to find a, a, a study that out of Harvard's Ash Center up there. And they've done surveys over the last, uh, since 2003, they've done eight waves of surveys across China, 31,000 people in urban and rural areas. Uh, and they said this, that based on the final wave of survey in 2016, that the government is more popular now in 2016 than at any point during the previous two decades that citizens perceptions of government performance respond most to real measurable changes in individuals material well-being so not just propaganda not just brainwashing um, and especially uh, they found greater increases in satisfaction in lower income and inland regions so places exactly like Bangdong so I was thrilled because 31,000 interviews are corroborating my two years of anecdotes. Uh, 350 people in Bangdong, an admittedly small sample size. Um, what's interesting about this is it's also a double-edged sword, right? If, if the basis of party legitimacy is improved livelihoods, if we're facing economic downturn, environmental degradation, corruption, issues like this, uh, challenges in foreign relations, how does that affect uh, support for the party? Let me add <clears throat> one caveat, if I may, and then I will be done. Um, I know what I've said has, sound, has sounded, I think, very um, favorable towards the Communist Party. There are issues happening right now, yes, in US-China relations, as, as Margot pointed out, um, and very important issues in, in, yes, in Chinese domestic politics, as well as we think about that. Um, ethnic religious impression, oppression in Xinjiang, uh, Uyghurs in re-education centers and detention camps, uh, the new security law 
in Hong Kong, police surveillance state, uh, rising tensions in political and, and religious repression uh, in China. These are really, really important issues. We must continue talking about them and act on them as well. The people that I talked to in rural China don't care at all about these issues. They do not affect their lives. They're not relevant to their lives. And uh, their lives are vulnerable and they care about the real measurable changes that are happening in their lives. New highways, paved roads for the first time, surgeries that don't cost two life savings, education for their children. Uh, one man told me, I can eat meat whenever I want it. It's like Chinese New Year every day now. These are measurable changes um, that my neighbors in Bangdong and that Brother Leo uh, are experiencing. They're living their best lives now. And so we see these issues differently. Uh, we see these mountains differently, um, perhaps different than me uh, or you, but these are their lived experiences and their perspectives and important to keep in mind as we think about the US-China relationship. Thank you so much. Uh, very much looking forward to your questions. Thanks so much, Matt. That was a very interesting and also in some ways provocative presentation. It's interesting to me that in July 2020, neither of you mentioned the coronavirus um, and the impact of that. Obviously, neither of you ha has been in China, I gather, since the outbreak started. But I would be very interested in hearing what either or both of you have to say about that not only from the perspective of healthcare, um, Melan's aunt says the greatest concern she has is getting sick because she may lose all her life savings. Matt, you said that the healthcare system has improved enough so that at least in Bandung village, people aren't afraid of being wiped out if they get sick but also the economic impact. The virus has certainly slowed down the Chinese economy. There's a claim that the second quarter was better than anticipated. There are also people who doubt the statistics. Um, but maybe each of you could talk a little bit about that while people are submitting questions through the Q&A icon at the bottom of your screen. Maylan, do you have thoughts? Would you like to share first? Sure. Um, I think uh, COVID-19 um, has um, influenced, has, you know, um, exerted a quite adverse impact on uh, migrant workers um, in this, especially in, the, in this year. Um, many of them, you know, have laid off because uh, still, even though the China, you know, the life in China is uh, resumed to normal. Um, many of the factories in some coastal regions are, are, are still uh, not opening and um, some of them are you know, permanently shut down. Um, so many um, migrant workers, they, you know, they're still trapped at their homes. 
uh, since Spring Festival. I have talked with some of my relatives um, in the hometown and they returned um, from Guangzhou, Guangdong province uh, for Spring Festival. And you know, they're still in their village um, in, uh, so far, uh, you know, till now. So they are still waiting for the, um, the news, the good news uh, from their factory. Um, but some people are trying to look for uh, jobs in the town, you know, uh, in Guizhou instead of uh, going out of uh, the province. And yeah, that's, a, I think this is a, a issue uh, with the last, you know, um, you know, for a long time, um, I, you know, overall China's economy is, a, is, a, is slowing down. And this, which means, you know, migrant workers would be um, even more severely affected compared to many other groups. So that's a, yeah, that's, a, that's my thought on this, uh, on this question. Yeah, I, I would add to that, um, totally, totally agree uh, with that. Um, Stanford did a study that, that estimated 54% uh, of rural workers were still unemployed uh, as a result of this. Uh, like Meilan said, factory is not opening up again. And so they also estimate about $100 billion in lost wages, which is a huge number. Um, but if you look at it, the granular uh, for, for these people um, who have gone out to work, like Bao Hong and like Meilan's family, um, that's their source of income. So for them to, to not be employed, to not have that income, to not have unemployment insurance, to not have a safety net, for that, um, you know, what's their alternative? Subsistence farming. You can't just jump back into subsistence farming, uh, and so yeah, huge challenges in that. Uh, at a at a granular level, uh, yeah, I left Bangdong right before um, COVID uh, broke out uh, there in China, but um, I've been in touch with them in the village since. And so what I'm what I heard there, basically one case. Uh, arrived in Lintang, uh, where, where Bangdong is the larger prefecture where Bangdong is located, um, and, and saw videos on WeChat of, of people in Bangdong village uh, running around the village, um, spraying, using their pesticide sprayers to disinfect everything in the village, cutting down bamboo to place blockades on the roads to not let people through uh, to control traffic. Um, one person from the village was allowed to go into the nearby township to get medicine or food supplies each day to supply for the village. Um, so it, it impacted people at a, at a very granular level. At the same time, because of the strict uh, restrictions, like I said, one case in this area, a guy from Wuhan who was going to visit his girlfriend uh, and they caught him uh, somehow, I, I, I think a temperature check at the airport, and they took him immediately to Kunming to be quarantined and hospitalized. So he didn't, didn't even get to see his girlfriend. Very unsuccessful trip for him. So anyhow, that's um, one other thing to add <clears throat> in terms of agriculture, uh, supply chains were absolutely affected by this uh, at all. Again, uh, if you don't have uh, manufacturing uh, or transportation networks um, to, to supply fertilizer, seed, feed for livestock, that types of thing, uh, you know, there's no access and increased costs, and we're probably not even seeing the effects of these yet um, because we haven't seen the effects of the growing season or what, what was not produced in the growing season. 
Thank you both. We have a question submitted from Professor Kristen Stapleton of the State University of New York at Buffalo. She asks, are China's rural policies changing the relationship between Chinese communities in the border regions and their neighbors in Southeast Asia? Would either of you like to address that? Uh, I, can, I can speak briefly to that. Uh, I think the infrastructure development that I saw <clears throat> uh, taking place in Yunnan, so they have a, they have a you know, five year plan that they put out every year. Um, one, one of the latest included a, I think it was seven interprovincial and five uh, basically outgoing highways that they were trying to connect Yunnan so that it wouldn't just be a hinterland uh, of China, but that it would be a bridge, an access point uh, of China to Southeast Asia to improve trade. Uh, and so not only those highways, I know that there are uh, rails going in um, very, very quickly to also try to bolster that, that trade, Pan-Asian rails. Uh, I know uh, Dr. Professor Lampton and Selena Ho have just come out with a book um, analyzing that, uh, that Pan-Asia Railway specifically. Um, so that interconnectivity, I think, is hoping to bolster trade, relations, economic opportunity for both sides, right? Um, as they're increasingly interconnected, obviously, there's, there's also opportunity for increased conflicts, uh, tensions, one of the most common that I hear about is over um, water issues. Uh, the, the Mekong that uh, essentially starts in the Himalayas in China, flows down through Yunnan province, uh, but then I think into five or six uh, Southeast Asian countries. Um, and so China has, has built lots of hydropower projects along that, uh, more potentially scheduled, uh, but I think perhaps more threatening to those countries downstream is the risk that uh, China would, could use that to control uh, water flow as, as a diplomatic uh, tool uh, or negotiating tool at some point. And there's some interesting uh, studies coming out of the Stimson Center that Brian Eiler is, is heading up um, that you should check out if you're interested in the main Mekong specifically. So uh, I think there's, as with everything, perhaps economic opportunities uh, that are that could potentially strengthen relation re relations and Im improved lives, uh, but also tensions uh, that that rise with that. Melan, did you want to add anything? Um, I think Matt has given a very good um, answer and examples. I don't have anything to add. Thank you. Okay, great. We've got questions pouring in. I'm already feeling that I need to apologize because we won't get to all of them. But let's go to Qin Gao, who is a professor at the School of Social Work at Columbia. She has a question for Meilan. She starts with great presentations. You are very optimistic that your cousin's children will have a better future and be able to pursue a middle-class life. I wonder if this is realistic. Education inequality has been growing in China. While these children are faring better than their parents, they might be lagging further behind their peers in the cities as compared to their parents' generation. What are your thoughts about this? 
Thank you for the question. It's a, it's a great question. Um, so I was optimistic about my, uh, my cousin's children's future. Well, it was, com was basically compared uh, you know, you know, with my aunt's children. My cousins, you know, they pay a lot of attention on education um, on their children. And also their children, even though they're still you know, living with their illiterate grandparents, um, they could still receive um, compulsory education, um, free education, and which means uh, at the very you know starting point, um, they can have um, they can receive equal educational opportunities. But of course, compared with the peers in the city in the urban area, uh, because of the you know um, the very unbalanced. Um, education resources and the different, you know, different qualities of education resources between the urban and rural area. Uh, I would say generally, um, children grew up in the urban area, they are more, they are exposed to more opportunities. Um, but for kids in the, you know, in less developed areas, uh, compared with their peers uh, living around them, um, whose parents pay less attention on their education, um, they could still, um, you know, um, have the chance to ascend to a better life. Um, there are some uh, examples that happening um, in, in, you know, in, in, um, in my family. Um, some of my cousin, you know, their children have grown up and they did, you know, they, they went to very good universities, um, which means they could, um, pursue a much better, uh, much promising future compared to many of their peers living in the village. Um, as Matt has pointed out in her, you know, in his presentation, education uh, for many people in the rural area is uh, is the only way. Well, it's not the only way, but it's one of the most important way for them to, you know, to proceed to a better uh, life and ascend to the middle class. Great, thank you. Thank we you. have uh, que questions for both of you from Joe Batat, formerly with the World Bank, formerly, he's retired from the World Bank. First question is, what would make the people in the countryside support the P CPC less, perhaps building on what Secretary Pompeo said this afternoon? That's my interjection, not his. And second, how easy or difficult was it for the people in Bandung village to accept you, Matt, a foreigner, as their neighbor? Uh, great question. Um, uh, let, let me start with the first one, and I don't know if Melan will want to add to the second one. Um, for people in Bandung to accept me as their neighbor, uh, yeah, there was a deep, deep curiosity in people uh, about me. Um, I, I think that uh, they were surprised and they, you know, why would a foreigner come to, you know, this place that's so remote that, you know, the mountains have us so isolated and poor, why in the world would you come here? So there's a lot of speculation about that, of course, um, you know, some thought I was a volunteer English teacher there, uh, others uh, thought that I was uh, a reporter for the for the Times, oh no, for Time Magazine, somehow that, that got misreported and a rumor running around things. Um, some people were convinced that I was a spy uh, as well. So lots of conjecture as to why I was there, what I was doing there. 
Um, but I think in general, um, man, I would walk around the village and without fail, you know, people would say, come sit, have some tea, you know, come have a meal with us, constantly inviting me into their homes, into their personal spaces uh, and conversation after conversation that, um, yeah, them sharing with me, them uh, being very willing to, to be open and have meaningful conversation um, yeah, me getting to share about my life and, and my perspectives, of, of course, as well. So I found um, there to be great, great acceptance, um, very much willingness to be friends. And at the end of the day, uh, a, a certain pragmatism to it, you know, uh, even so the, the two years that I was there, that's when tensions between the U.S. and China have, have been just growing the entire time. Uh, and people would say, you know, very pragmatically, that's between our governments. That has nothing to do with us people. And so even though, again, we saw the mountains differently, perhaps, uh, I think people were very eager to have that be a distant thing that didn't affect our personal relationships that I, yeah, I valued uh, greatly. As to your first question, uh, what would make uh, people in rural areas support the CPC less? Um, I think like this Harvard report pointed out, um, the greatest contributing factor to uh, support the CP, the Communist Party uh, in China is improved livelihoods. Um, and so what would make them support that less? If they stopped feeling the benefits of that to their lives, uh, and if they stopped having hope that that would continue to improve. Because they're not arrived yet. Yes, their lives are better now, but they're still very much hoping for an improved future. Like this is, this is not enough. So if that stops, um, that, that, yeah, could challenge that legitimacy uh, of party rule. What does economic downturn look like and how does that affect people in the countryside? Um, at, you know, at some point would these new benefits that they're just starting to, to receive in the last decade of uh, healthcare, insurance, uh, free education, no taxes for rural areas. Would these benefits uh, suddenly have to go away? Um, and what would that do to party support? I think those are good questions. Melan, anything to add? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, for the first question, I agree with Matt. Um, so I'm from the rural background. So I, uh, I understand why people, you know, um, they are supporting the CPC because um, for, you know, many of them have, uh, you know, their life has changed because of some of the uh, preferential policies and also, you know, job opportunities uh, for them um, and increased income. That's made them, you know, supporting um, the government. Um, so what can make them less support? If they don't have anything, you know, in that, I don't think, you know, they would support any government. <laughs> and for the second question, um, yeah, I, I think Matt, um, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, story, you know. So in our hometown, in this, uh, I'm, I, the, the, this, the town that I'm from is a, is a very small one, and we literally didn't, did not have any, you know, foreigners visiting uh, our place. And so, but recently, you know, in recent years, we have seen some um, foreigners, um, you know, walking around in our, um, you know, in the town, and many people are just very curious where they're from. 
Um, but people are very friendly to them, um, and especially the children, they are very willing to learn English with them. So, <laughs> yeah, I think people's mind is changing. Um, you know, like people, you know, um, is, you know, the younger generation, they are willing to make, make friends to, you know, with the people from out of the country, uh, either to practice their English or uh, learning, you know, uh, more about, you know, their experience. Um, but for the older generation, for like, for example, my parents has, like my grandparents, they would still feel, you know, it's kind of interesting <laughs> to have some foreigners, you know, uh, visiting our hometown. Thank you both. Some things don't change. When I first went to China in 1979, even though I was certainly not in the countryside, people thought it was very peculiar to see a foreigner. A question from Irving Lee, who is a retired New York City transit person. Is it correct to say that the anti-poverty campaign is not about handouts, but is about building a business structure that allows people to be productive and get themselves out of poverty? So, uh, that's a that's a great question. I think theoretically, you are spot on. Theoretically is not about handouts, and you'll see uh, lots of political slogans throughout the countryside uh, that say, um, you know, it. Uh, the road to prosperity starts with me and you, right? And uh, through the sweat of the brow uh, is where we will uh, be prosperous, uh, not by um, someone doing something for us. So I think theoretically, yes, trying to um, encourage people to work and to foster uh, economic opportunities. Uh, Melan, you know, highlighted specifically uh, Taobao villages and industries moving from the East Coast uh, further inland. Um, you know, trying to encourage entrepreneurship in a younger generation, you know, people going back to, to their hometowns and trying to start new industries or online opportunities through, through e-commerce. Uh, I saw a lot of, I saw, I visited a, a, a farm where a lady was live streaming uh, on her phone and selling pomegranates, you know, to people on the East Coast. And she was letting the people pick out specifically which, you know, chao ji da super big pomegranates that they wanted. Um, so I, I think very much that's the idea. Local governments are tasked with, you know, trying to survey the area and, and in Yunnan specifically, you know, what sort of crops would grow well in different areas based on climates and trying to support uh, businesses that are uh, tapping in to those encouraged industries. So I think that's the idea. At the same time, um, in practice, quite frankly, that's not always how it works. And quite frankly, there are um, people who are poor um, and who are uneducated. And uh, people would describe for me that it's you know, it's a, it's a problem with their mindset or way of thinking. Um, they're uncivilized or uneducated. Uh, and you can't uh, just change that uh, like that. And in fact, um, probably you can't change that uh, other than like we've talked about prom uh, fostering education 
in the next generation. Um, for example, two neighbors uh, of mine. One of them, uh, a man who was officially impoverished, they came in, uh, did a little survey, found out his annual income, how much land he had, livestock, and developed a 10-point plan on how to get him out of poverty. And I talked with my neighbor, and, and he said, um, now that last year, now that he was officially out of poverty, I asked him, you know, what was the difference between his life before and after? Uh, and uh, he said he had been, well, he didn't use the term handout, but uh, the government had built him a bathroom, and he had, uh, what was it? He had gotten um, free money for his house uh, for, for about $8,000 uh, to build, to take away uh, his old unsafe structure and build a new house. He borrowed from friends and family uh, to build his new three-story house. Uh, and he got subsidies for health insurance and his kid got free education. Um, so those are significant things. Uh, in some ways, but also he felt like uh, actually not much in his life had changed. He felt like he was still poor. Um, these, these were handouts dependent solely upon government financing. And in terms of his job, occupation, and ability to earn income, nothing had changed from two years prior to that year. Um, so what, what does that mean for moving forward? What does that mean for sustainability? of the poverty elimination campaign? That's an uh, important question. And the last example is another neighbor uh, who, um, his parents are too old to work, his wife has mental health issues, he has two kids in school, uh, and he himself is an alcoholic and so doesn't work. Uh, and so uh, again, the government gave people in our village, friends of mine, money to go fix up his house, teach him how to clean his house, um, but, but there's nothing in terms of job opportunity, nothing is going to change the status of this man's life or lift them out of poverty other than handouts, maintaining them at that very low bar until his kids hopefully get a good enough education that they're able to find jobs to support their parents in the long term. Maylon? Sure. Uh, so for this question, um, yeah, this is a, also a very great question. Then, you know, like Matthew said, um, you cannot, you know, the government is trying to help people who are living on, um, uh, you know, impoverished uh, condition by giving them uh, money or, you know, giving, um, providing their um, some free resources. Um, however, um, like this question has pointed out, um, it's not the poverty, the anti-poverty program cannot be uh, only about giving handouts, but also, but more importantly, like teaching people how to build, you know, business, um, like encouraging, you know, a local industry um, in some, you know, place in, in some rural areas. Um, for example, the tea industry that um, this one of the specialty in my hometown. And in recent years, the government has some uh, like provincial preferential policies for the local people to uh, grow um, tea um, and, um, uh, and and start up like tea industry, tea company, etc. Um, for the younger generation, I, I still think that you know education the, the, is a core. Um, so the government is uh, you know one of the um, the the policies under this program is the you know. Um, 
all the children, um, all the children under, um, I've got the exact name, uh, you know, the age, uh, maybe, you know, maybe like 12, 12, you know, under 12 years old, they have to um, go to, you know, they have to accomplish, com uh, accomplish their uh, compulsory education. And this education is free for them. And um, there's, you know, some, in some rural area, you know, children may drop out because parents do not support or they do not want to uh, go back to school, but the, you know, uh, the government officials would, would go to door to door, you know, to talk to them, to encourage their students, uh, encourage their children go back to school. Um, so I think, you know, this, uh, this in some ways the teaching is trying to help this younger generation to gain uh, basic education um, and help them to learn skills um, and which would help them, you know, um, elevate from elevate themselves from poverty in the long run. Thank you. We have a question, and I apologize in advance if I'm mispronouncing the last name from Teresa Pure Tour. I should learn how to say it. She is with Oxfam, and her question, I think, Meilan, is for you. What role can Chinese NGOs play in addressing rural poverty as demographics slash population sizes of villages continue to shift while balancing a delicate relationship with the government? Again, this is a great question too. <laughs> um, I have worked in uh, some NGOs when I, uh, before I came back to, uh, before I moved to the States. Um, but um, however, none of the, you know, the NGO that I have worked uh, with um, have touched any issues on the rural poverty um, um, topic. Um, I, could, um, I could share some of my personal thoughts on this question. Um, still in the, you know, among the, there's a lot of problems in the rural area uh, that cannot, you know, only addressed by the government. Um, so we need NGO to step in. Um, one of the issues, one of the, you know, uh, major issue that I think is quite uh, important is the left behind children issue um, um, in, in some of the rural, you know, areas. Like, I think, you know, um, those um, left behind children, um, they um, spend most of the time living with their grandparents or their um, relatives. Um, they do not really have, uh, you know, um, close connection with their parents, which is not very good for their, you know, mental health de development, especially when they, um, you know, when they, in their uh, puberty, uh, adolescent period, they would become more rebellious. And um, I have seen many cases that uh, children, yeah, they drop out by themselves, um, you know, before they finish their high school or even middle school. Um, and the parents and their grandparents could not really do anything about it. In this case, I think, um, you know, nonprofits, organizations who have the expert, who know how to communicate with those, you know, with the children uh, can, you know, should step in. Because uh, I think this is a, you know, one of the issues that the government cannot really um, address by themselves. And yeah, there's uh, also many other issues 
like um, many migrant workers, their rights cannot be uh, fully guaranteed um, because, uh, you know, like for example, some of the migrant workers they never uh, go, you know, went to school. Uh, for example, my aunt, you know, um, so she did not really sign a contract with her employer, you know, which means she could not receive any basic um, social uh, benefits. Uh, and uh, if there's any accident, accident happens on her, she cannot, you know, it's quite hard for her to get uh, compensation and refund. And in this case, I think, um, well, um, in addition to uh, the effort from the government to, you know, in strengthen uh, the pension system and also um, uh, the protection on the migrant worker, I think the NGO, the civil society could also uh, help them, for example, um, educating them how to protect their rights and uh, providing them sources where they could go to, um, you know, where they could uh, look for help if such things ever happens on them. Matt, would you like to add anything? Yeah, if I can just add, add a quick word. So I, I attended a conference in Southern Yunnan, it was four NGOs, um, and it was, it was talking about uh, tourism as poverty alleviation. And so NGOs that were there included foreign ones like World Vision had some representatives there. And then, you know, domestic ones, uh, China Foundation for Poverty Alleviation was there and, and lots of others, small ones as well. Um, I say that because those are organizations that was kind of puzzling to me at first, you know, why are they doing uh, tourism in poverty as, as poverty elimination. That's, that's odd to me. I didn't know that World Vision was into tourism. Um, and, and I think what the takeaway for me was what they talked about uh, and what, what I'd like to share with you is just that sometimes um, I, I think the best strategy for NGOs is to align exactly with what the government is already doing. Um, I, I agree with Melan that there are areas that the, that the government can't do everything um, sometimes it wants help to, to accomplish the things that it cannot do, and sometimes it does not want help to accomplish the things uh, that it cannot do. And so distinguishing that and working very, very closely with provincial or local governments to figure out what are their priorities and how you can think creatively about aligning your unique mission statement or vision and goals uh, that you typically have in, in your NGA NGO programs with the priorities of the government because as as I'm sure you're well aware um, it, regulations are tightening on international NGOs uh, and domestic NGOs there's a challenging environment to work in right now and so yeah partnership with the government is critical to success in that space thank you both in the interests of time I'm going to combine two related questions the first was submitted by Professor David Atwill, who writes, both of your talks offer a rarely heard, parens in the US, reality of rural life in some of China's most remote areas. Thank you, and the wonderful photos. My question is about how reflective this is of other rural areas in China that witnessed similar quote unquote modernization advances a decade or two ago. Is it similar? Could you predict what the next phase of life might be like in your communities in Yunnan and Guizhou? 
And the second question is from Tom Grunfeld, a retired professor from the State University of New York, Empire State College. How wide are the disparities among rural areas in different parts of the country? Maylan, do you have a good answer to that? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, for the first question, I think for the next uh, phase of life, what it would be like in um, my community? Um, I would say, you know, the difference, uh, I visit my hometown every, uh, um, you know, once a year, uh, especially during spring festival. And almost every, every time when I went back, um, I would find, you know, something new happening um, in the village, as well as in the town where my parents, my parents are living. Um, you know, just a lot of the modern buildings are, you know, have been built. And people, you know, the differences between um, the rural area and the urban area is actually narrowing. You know, what the, the technology, the app, you know, the, the mobile phones that many uh, people living in the urban uh, area using also um, has become part of uh, uh, the appliances of many villagers. Um, and in my hometown, you know, the roads, we didn't really have a, you know, have a, a cement road like uh, about 10 years ago, but now um, this is everywhere. And, um, and it's, uh, I feel like in the next phase, I think the rural area, um, my home, you know, the village community, on the one, on one side, I think it's getting more and more empty because more young people are moving out of the village and older generation, uh, some older generation are also moving uh, with, their, with their children. Um, so I think in the, in the next 10 years, my village would become uh, very empty. Um, and large parts of the, um, you know, the, the area would be uh, urbanized. Uh, for you know, some of the lands has already taken to build roads and infrastructures. Uh, many of the houses, you know, the uh, traditional ethnic uh, minority houses are torn down and because not many people are living in it anymore. And um, that's one of the, you know, picture I could envision. Um, I could envision in the next um, maybe 10 years. And another, um, and, and another thing that I could imagine that um, the, you know, people's living um, standards would improve a lot. Um, as well, um, since men, you know, young, young, you know, younger generation are moving to the urban area in search of a work, and they can get better income sources, and also their children can go to can receive better education resources as well. So in the long run, I think their uh, the living standard, you know, for the younger generation in my community uh, would improve a lot. Sorry, what's the what's the next question about? differences in the countryside in different parts of the country? Yeah, I think um, some, the rural area in eastern China is quite different uh, from um, the, you know, the southwestern China. Well, um, generally speaking, the south, uh, the, the western, southwestern China, the, the region where I'm from is less developed compared with those regions. Uh, in the coastal, in the eastern region, and also um, in some, you know, the northern region. 
Um, so I think, you know, this is a quite different um, scenario. Um, for, the, for the rural areas in the northern regions, they also have a lot of, uh, you know, issues like uh, the poverty issue in some places is still quite alarming. Um, and I think it's a depend, it's also, um, for example, the like Henan, Henan province, it's a, uh, one of the biggest uh, provinces in China, but it is also one of the, uh, poor, you know, poorest uh, provinces in China. Um, so the countryside issue, the poverty issue is, a, um, I assume it's a quite different from our, uh, from the region where I'm from. Um, my region is full of, uh, it's, it's full of a lot of uh, different ethnic minority groups. Um, and the landscape is also quite different. Like uh, the picture showed in Matt's um, uh, presentation, there, we have a lot, a lot of mountains. Uh, the mountains was not, uh, you know, was not a treasure before. It was, a, it was more like obstacle for people to, you know, to achieve, to, to gain um, uh, fortune. Um, so, however, um, you know, the, the, you know, it's the thing, you know, the mindset has changed a lot uh, because of, uh, uh, because the government is uh, encouraging the local ecotourism. So the mountain has become a source of, uh, of income, you know, it has attracted many people from other uh, parts of China. Um, for the rural, for the poverty issue in some other regions, um, part, you know, some other regions of China, um, I would say it's a, we, we have to look at them quite differently because they um, have their own historic issue, they have their own, you know, landscape challenges and also resources. Matt? Yeah, uh, great response, Meilan. I, I would just add, um, you know, as to how reflective of, say, Bangdong Village was of, you know, of rural China. Um, I, it's a great question and one I've wrestled with, right, because um, how relevant is, are, are these conversations and the things that I've learned to China more broadly? Um, that is, is why, one reason why I was so encouraged by this Harvard study, uh, because they talked about the this uh, support for the for the party specifically was in low income areas inland um, and so you know not just places like uh, Guizhou or Yunnan um, but rural uh, low income places more broadly um, for Bangdong specifically it's actually not um, an ethnic minority village uh, it's a it's a predominantly Han uh, village and so there's not a there's not a strong sense of ethnic identity there so uh, that was not intentional uh, but I think lucky on my part because I feel like uh, at, at least in some ways uh, culturally um, that would transfer more readily to uh, other rural areas uh, around China um, as far as you know next phase in developed for these communities I think rural areas um, yeah, elsewhere, maybe, maybe 10, 20, uh, even 30 years uh, ahead of, you know, places that we're talking about in Guizhou and Yunnan, um, you know, their challenges of development, obviously, yeah, emptying out these villages um, where it's the grandparents and the kids, uh, but no connection uh, of the, the middle generation to that community. And so what does it look like for longevity of of the life of that village. Does that village die? Uh, what happens to that village? Uh, how I 
um, what's interesting as well is that some of, you know, some rural villages elsewhere are going to be based more in industry, you know, very small scale industries, Taobao villages, Yunnan, the villages that I visit um, were predominantly agriculture based. Uh, and so I think the, the main question is, are, are they villages that are subsistence farmer agriculture, or are they able to find a cash crop industry that provides economic opportunities for there to be life in that village and for people in that community to, yeah, want to go out and get educated, but come back and continue to be part of that community. That was the case in Bangdong where I was because in the last 10 years, suddenly there's a premium uh, on tea. Um, so like Meilan's village, they specialize in tea where I lived. Uh, and so people were able to stop going out to work as migrant laborers and stay in Bangdong, develop their, their tea, process it, and have a life there full time. Um, but I mentioned uh, where Bao Hong, the migrant laborer that I had in my slides, he lives in a village 20 kilometers away, not good tea, bad soil, bad climate. Uh, and so uh, it sells for a tenth of the price of Bangdong tea. So they're subsistence farmers and they all go out to work. Uh, what does the future of that village look like when uh, I talk to a man who uh, chops heads off chickens in a factory in Shandong and he has done that for 20 years uh, in this village. He would like to come back and, you know, build a new house and, and figure out some sort of business opportunity there. But there's not, there's not an economic foundation to build on to open a business there. There's not life in that community. So I think you're going to continue to see villages that die off, empty out and die off in villages that there is life there because there's some sort of cash crop or industry that they're able to sustain in that village. Great, thank you very much. I was hoping we would be able to squeeze in one more question, but unfortunately we have run out of time. I want to thank our two speakers for a wonderful, illuminating session this afternoon and to thank our audience members for joining us. And I hope that you will return for future National Committee programs, both our speakers and our audience. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Margo. Thank you, everyone. Yes, thank you so much for joining. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.